Welcome to this brief film about English and British sculpture. Uh, let's begin right at the beginning with something which can't really entirely be described as a sculpture, but is Stonehenge, an enormous and sort of semi-celestial monument, the better part of two thousand, the better part of four thousand years old, grim, Chthonian, profound, a pagan cathedral, freestanding. The Christianity of 2,000 years left it alone, and in a strange way, the English and British monumental tradition in stone begins with this piece. There's an extraordinary leap as well across the better part of four millennia to modernist sculpture, which Henry Moore-like epitomises the primitive and the fierce and the primeval and even the tribal. So let's begin this analysis of what we have done three-dimensionally in the arts with the first cathedral that has come down to us on these islands from the ancient world. Here we move on in time to a Celtic horse mask from southern Scotland circa 200 BC or thereabouts slightly dented now as it comes down to us pre-Germanic in feel, ancient Celtic the symbolism of uh, snakes, almost, and swirls, and that patterning that Celtic art so beloves. Obviously it's an item that comes from the battlefield, and is essentially a piece of armour to protect a horse, or to signify the power of a horse. And in it we see something of pre-Germanic Britain, of a Britain which is yet to be influenced by Romans or people of Germanic ancestry. A Britishness that is differentiated in terms of how we perceive it the better part of 2,000 years on. Many of these items, small and large, particularly coins, have come down to us, often elongated, often with slightly surreal shapes. Celtic craftsmen weren't interested in realism and their art was essentially not abstract but mystagogic and followed from the nature of their legends and their myths. Here we move forward to the influence of the Roman civilization on the British Isles. This is a particularly British interpretation of a classical legend. It's the head of a Medusa the snakes as hair swirling around the actual physiognomy of the piece. Yet this piece isn't really Italianate. It's not that classical in feel. It's uh, very British and even English. It's found in Bath and in the West Country and it comes to look, to my mind, as a sort of heavy piece of solemn, uh, fiercely etched, um, non-classical in its lineaments, a sort of transliteration of Romanesque art into British terms. We've taken their material and interpreted it in accordance with our craftsmen. And you can leap forward almost to the images on the outside of steeples in the Middle Ages from this type of art. Fierce, slightly primitive. You can almost sense uh, an Italian of the era who would wince. But we've taken it into ourselves and made something different out of it. Yet here we have something in the same era, a British variation on a Roman theme, uh, two images uh, for the price of one, one of them extraordinarily modernist looking, 
Yeah, the one on the uh, left, as you look at it, could almost be a piece by Elizabeth Frink, say, from the middle of the 20th century. But again, these are British takes on Roman ideas about their gods. One from Gloucester, the other from Northumberland. Uh, one thing you will notice about them is their heaviness, their three-dimensionality, uh, their earthy solidity. There's a certain absence of, sort of classical lightness, but there's a uh, primeval and uh, deeper consciousness, a more northwestern European consciousness, not a southern European one. Again, we've taken Roman cultural archetypes, motifs and forms into ourselves, and our craftsmen have obeyed their Roman masters, but in a sense they've produced something uh, which is ir irredeemably British. Here we have a Northumbrian Christian cross leaping nine centuries forward from the last exhibit. Uh, very Christian, slightly Romanesque, smallish figures outlined in semi-relief against the texture of the cross as it goes up. Uh, to my mind there still seems to be certain pre-Christian iconographic elements to the piece. Uh, the thing that strikes me though is that differentiated from the Celtic art that we looked at before but very much in spirit with the more Roman art that we evaluated a moment previous to this. There's a solidity to the piece, a strength, an insularity, and a grandeur, which goes through all British three-dimensional art, whether Celtic, Romanesque, Christian, explicitly pagan, uh, restorationist, modernistic. This sense, not of heaviness, but of uh, the gentility of strength, and of a sort of resonential power to three-dimensional space. Here, moving on in time, we sense a Saxon and an explicitly Germanic influence in Christian English art, as we can now call it. Uh, the sculpture is still embedded on a wall, on a plane. It's partly a relief, but as you can see from its three-dimensionality, the figure of the crucified Christ wants to come out of the wall and is almost, one could say, 50% three-dimensional. It's not going to take too much for it to burst out of the wall, off the cross, and be a configured figure in its own right. Again, we see not just the Christian influence, ideologically and theologically, but that element of profundity and heaviness and truth to materials and prior solidity, uh, which I believe is a quintessential part of English and British three-dimensional form. It's interesting that these things remain extant no matter the change in historical period or the overlying culture. We pass from a primeval paganism to a Celtic influence to an influence of Imperial Rome to an influence of early Middle Ages Christianity and yet some of the abiding ethnic themes that lie behind the delineation of three-dimensional art remain the same. Here we move slightly forward in time to an extraordinary image which could be said to be the beginning of the high art sculptural tradition in England as it's come down to us, as it will be interpreted by critics like Orpen in the early part of the 20th century just gone. This dates from 1290 and is an effigy made by William Torrell, uh, one of his first ones, a life-size bronze 
It's an extraordinary piece. Imagine it's incredibly heavy, highly wrought, the full length of a man's course, yeah, metallic, powerful, but again you have, amidst the finery and the pertinences of the form, a strength, a physical power, a solidity, even in repose. Uh, ideologically it's supposed to show the redemption of a Christian and knightly grace uh, in the context of death, but I think it very much relates to, in its three-dimensionality, many of the images that we've seen before. So powerful, even in its metallic form, that it survived the better part of a thousand years, and will probably be extant a thousand years from now. This is the bringing together of stoicism in form, grace, solidity as to material, truth to materials, to use a modern slogan, and the quiet power of the English three-dimensional tradition. Here we have an image in bronze again, highly weathered, of Richard II, the subject of a Shakespeare play. Uh, again very much seen in the Christian vogue, a Christian knightly monarch, uh, looking slightly meek and humble, how you were supposed to look in the era. Very strongly three-dimensional, good line, powerful squat nature of the features and upper shoulders. He's depicted slightly as an apostle, but again, these were parts of the conventions of the period. Uh, but again, we return to this theme of compactness, stoicism, truth to material, and solidity in all of English, and to a slightly lesser extent, British sculpture. There is this deep, quiet, and reverberating sense of power in the depiction of the face, uh, the upper body, or the entire frame. I have an image from the 14th century from Cambridgeshire, from a provincial church. It strikes me as a very Germanic image, uh, this one almost completely three-dimensional but with a certain element of relief, but the relief becomes ever more studied, ever more withdrawn. The figures are bursting through into three-dimensionality. This is a scene of the ascent of the Christ after death, after the resurrection. He appears both as a victim and as a monarch or celestial king. Uh, the Roman soldiers, who actually look like medieval warriors of the time, because uh, those are the uh, forms or archetypes upon which the anonymous sculpture is drawing, fall back in amazement and consternation uh, before this uh, risen being who's almost sort of walking out of the relief um, to what is perceived as a semblance of glory. Here we have a terracotta from the 1540s. Uh, it doesn't really relate to pure English art that much, but what we see here is an opening out in the Tudor period to continental influence. So we're dealing with a sort of re-Europeanisation or a return of the sculpture of the ancient world in the form of a bust relating to the uh, Roman Emperor and once conqueror of Britain, Julius Caesar. But it's the opening to intellectual ideas on the continent and although you could say that in the Middle Ages we internalise lots of continental ideas, here are Italian sculptors coming over uh, the behest of the court, structures of the day, to bring high Renaissance material within the purview of the English tradition. And from now on we see a mixing of what existed before and the high art of the Renaissance 
coming over to Britain and England in order to curry its trade. We see a sort of fusion of various European styles as the whole of the European civilization is beginning to wean itself away from the Middle Ages and is beginning to look towards the creation of early modern Europe. And you have this sensibility which grows up during the century and the one to come after it, which involves a gradual dechristianization a return of the classical in various dimensions, this is the classicism of the ancient world, and a slight mobility and a loosening of the rigid forms of medieval and post-medieval art. I have another example of the High Renaissance. Uh, it's the spirit, the lightish spirit of Michelangelo, come over to England, hopped over and in wood. It's from King's College uh, Chapel in Cambridge, forcing house and ap academic stamping ground of the uh, upper class elite of the time of course and again it's the belief in all things Italian and the Renaissance style and spirit in stone, in bronze, in wood, in jewellery, in literature and elsewhere so we're taking during this period whole handfuls of Renaissance sensibility from the southern part of Europe and bringing it across and internalizing it as part of the national tradition. Uh, now what's really happening here is two things. We're opening up to a humanism which is European, we're opening up to certain post-Christian sensibilities, and yet at the same time we're going back to certain of the conceits and styles of the ancient world, but we don't know entirely what they were, so we are stylizing what we imagine the ancient craftsmen did in bas-relief, in two dimensions, in three dimensions and we're bringing it forward several thousand years as Christianity begins to loosen its hold upon the European imagination and we connect via southern Europe and its cultural influences with the classical world. Uh, here we see a major sculpture from 1592 um, by Gerard Johnson the Elder uh, the tradition is well advanced now. This sculpture deals with death, of course, and an enormous amount of monumental masonry and three-dimensional sculpture deals with the relief of death, both inside and outside Christianity. The power and solemnity of the tomb or mausoleum, the desire to incarnate oneself as a living corpse after death, the power of a provincial noble family to be seen for the entire community, possibly for hundreds of years. This is the Southampton tomb at Titchfield, and yet it's also of a very important patron in the history of English art. This is the third Earl who was Shakespeare's patron. The arts in all eras have to obtain money because they can't finance themselves in a completely freestanding way. In this era, aristocrats and very rich individuals from the upper class would give money and be seen to give money to the arts as part of an organic tradition but they always had a certain element of self-interest and they always wanted their family uh, such as through the vehicle of a tomb like this to be the recipients of their largesse so the money is given an enormous tomb of massive monumentality is built to a local dignitary and you can sense the power in this church not only is it very big, very tall, very solid there are these spear-like menhirs that on either on the three or four corners of the tomb that make these stone corpses in state look like sort of images from ancient Egypt almost. It's a sort of um, grandiloquence 
and power of an aristocracy that had life and death powers over the rest of society, brooked no word against them and were totally in charge. It's also the sign of a ruling group that is completely self-confident in this world and what they presume. Yes, this is another piece, uh, a relief, but uh, yearning and striving in its stone-like quality for three-dimensionality. This is by a great sculptor, Caius Gabriel Kibber, or Sibber, a Dane, who did an enormous amount of work during this sort of uh, Baroque, Augustine and allegorical period. Um, this is a truly sort of uh, 18th century version of a classical conceit as they attempt to realise it. Charles II pleads on behalf of art and science and the muses to restore a damaged London which has been ravaged by fire and destruction. It's a sort of um, heroic post-Renaissance painting in stone. Um, everyone's highly idealised, everyone's upward looking, everyone's uh, made to look as noble as possible. And uh, Kibber in turn was an extraordinary sculptor who's quite famous now for influencing some modernist sculptors because two of his most famous pieces are the grotesque and gibbering figures outside what used to be a Bedlam hospital in South London. One's called Madness and the other's called Raving Melancholy. And they're interesting grotesques that partly relate to medieval art and now are still there outside the entrance to the Imperial War Museum. We have a relief, again very solid in its uh, two to three dimensionality from St Paul's Cathedral. It shows a biblical scene, the conversion of St Paul or Saul, who sees the divine light on the road to Damascus, is thrown from his horse and the persecutor of the Christians becomes the founder of Christ's church. And yet in a strange way, for to my mind, the Baroque or post-Baroque and sort of um, highly individualised sensibility of the piece doesn't have that much to do with Christianity. It's a typically post-Renaissance work whereby Christian discourse and narrative heritage is used as the model on, on which you do a modern version of a classical sculpture. So we've got the horsemen rearing up, being thrown from their mounts, and the divine sun coming down from the clouds, and all of these Israelites, as it were, are depicted like warriors from the ancient world who are mysteriously wearing armour and carry weapons that are from the beginning of the 18th century. This dates from 1706 and is by Francis Bird, who's a very famous sculptor of the period, did an enormous amount of work in and around St Paul's. Uh, probably the modern sensibility would find his version of the Duke of Newcastle in that cathedral to be the most interesting of his works. This is a savage and rather grotesque piece in the form of a large sculptural tomb in which two skeletons tear apart the bottom end of an oak tree. Here we move forward a little bit in time, but the vogue and the sensibility is still very much the same. This, believe it or not, is a bust of the then princess and later Queen Victoria it's from the collection at Windsor Castle on dates from 1829 by William Benes. And you notice the young Victoria is depicted much like the present Queen's painting by Anagoni as a sort of exultant and uh, superbly modelled being. And she looks like the young daughter of a Roman senator. But this is very much the way in which 
uh, the English and British nobility wished to be perceived at that time. A certain sort of yearning and sort of expectant and transcendent quality. These busts were done for almost anyone of renown at the time and they would have been done in her case to royal commission and for such patronage. Although we've leapt from the beginning of the 1700s to the early section of the uh, century that follows, you notice that this type of work is all of a piece and there is a contiguous nature to British and English sculpture between the Restoration in 1660 and, say, the Great Form Bill in 1867. You can virtually say the sensibility that masters the sculpture of this period, straddling over a century and a half, is the same sensibility. It's uh, pre-romantic, it's Augustan, it's highly classical, and it's of a, a light, stylized, um, early Michelangelo-driven interpretation of what the sculpture of the ancient world would have been like. There are many, of course, falsities and discontinuities because ancient sculpture was highly decorative and painted. We see it without paint because all the paint's rotted off. We see it as stone and white stone. Uh, or on occasion marble, but in actual fact when these images are recreated as they have been in the 20th century by imagization techniques, particularly pioneered by the Victoria and Albert Museum, we get a totally different idea of what ancient sculpture was. So this is our idea of unpainted ancient sculpture thousands of years on in order to celebrate the then imperial British aristocracy. Now here we have another piece of stylized and slightly Baroque classicism, although more stereotypically classical in its way. It's of an aristocrat, the Countess of Bath, uh, and it's by Balthazar Berman. Again, it's this attempt to heroicize through the revisualization of the ancient world, the aristocracy from the 17th, the 18th, and eventually the first half of the 19th century. So you have this sensibility which you will see in churchyards and vicarages and churches in particular up and down the country whereby the nobility identifies themselves with the Christian tradition, with the classical tradition, with the Greco-Roman and Hellenistic tradition and wants to celebrate through patronage their power and solidity in stone. I have another piece that relates to the style that I've just described. It again is of a provincial aristocrat or at the very least um, august figure, Sir John Thornycroft, whether he relates to Tory politicians with that name in the 20th century, I've got no idea. This is by uh, Andreas Carpentier, and if you notice the way in which this individual wants to be depicted, he looks as though he's a drunk uh, associate of a poet like Catullus in ancient Rome. He's lying on a bed or on the floor of a party making an allegedly witty remark, wearing a toga, and an 18th century wig. So you see that people in vogue in their century want to be, wanted to be depicted as the heroes of the ancient world, particularly in literature and in the arts. So it's partly a fantasy that these people had about themselves, but it's also part of the power of the West. In the middle of the 20th century, a rather dissident American figure called Lawrence R. Brown, who was an engineer, wrote a book called The Might of the West, and these people believed totally in the Western civilization. They believed in its domination, they believed in its civilizing mission, they believed it extended through various uh, incarnations from the ancient world. These were people who had no doubts 
even about, about themselves, their society, its extension imperially across the earth, and the power of their own nationalities. They also saw themselves, Christian or otherwise, as the inheritors of the classical tradition. Full stop. In um, Augustan Vogue, it's Lady Frederica Stanhope um, from Shevening in Kent, 1825. Slightly daring here because she's actually feeding her young child lying on the side in repose, although, of course, the sculpture is in many ways is a tomb and is meant to imply death. But maternal expressions of any sentiments involving female sexuality would be permitted in this period. Don't forget we are slightly before what could be called the what would become the High Victorian period. Uh, we have unnecessarily restrictive views about this time. We think this period was incredibly prudish and so on. When if you look at its three-dimensional art you wouldn't actually draw that conclusion. The reason for this is the classicizing and Hellenistic tendencies which are so pronounced, so naked, almost literally so in this case, uh, this sculpture is by Sir Francis Chantry, and it again is part of this idealising tendency in the aristocracy of the day to see themselves as the British equivalents of the leaders of the Roman Empire. Here we have a bust, a sculpture from the same era. It's in Burlington House, which is in Piccadilly, right in the centre of London, and which is today the centre of the Royal Academy. Although technically private, you could regard the Academy as the leading state art institution, the National Gallery accepted in Britain. Uh, the pieces of George III dates from the 1770s and is by an Italian artist and sculptor, Augustino Carlini. Um, you look at the sombre magnificence of this truculent German, wants to be seen as a sort of Augustus really, a sort of a, a modern Roman Emperor. Uh, wearing a toga, of course, which people in his era didn't really wear, um, looking solemn, looking fierce, looking um, statesman-like, if rather sober-minded and sort of lugubrious. Um, no signs of the putative insanity which would have him leaving the coach in Windsor Great Park and engaging in excited conversation with the oak trees. Yes, here we have a major monumental piece of sculpture, life-size, very biographical, very characterful. Um, the classicising and heroicising elements are downplayed and we have a certain representational portraiture in stone and of course in three dimensions. This is in Westminster Abbey and it's of the reformer and anti-slave trader William Wilberforce. Now this piece which is very characterful and you can sense the rather liberal-minded Whiggish sensibility of this uh, very upper-class gentleman of his era, uh, influenced by humanism, enlightenment and post-Renaissance ideas, as well as the dawning of the high liberalism of the middle Victorian period, as well as extremely Christian sensibility as well. Nevertheless, there's different ways of looking at Wilberforce because many slave owners of the time wanted to introduce a mass class of black slaves beneath the white proletariat in Britain. So, paradoxically, and in a rather revisionist vogue, it is possible to see Wilberforce as a man who may not have wanted this, but he did preempt the creation of explicit multiracialism in Britain by maybe 120 odd years before it actually began to get underway in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, here we have very much a classical image from the same period, the 1700s, late 1700s, Venus.
by John Deere. Uh, aristocrat would have commissioned this. We see her stroking the head of a horse, a rather serpentine sort of looking horse. Again, uh, quite an erotic piece, a nude. You're a Philistine if you're against it. It's a very important point here. In nearly all Indo-European or Aryan art, there's a strong concentration on the body and on the physicality of the body and the sexual delineation of the body, it has to be said, particularly in three dimensions. And this is very much the pre-Christian tradition of the Hellenes and of the ancient world. Um, this corporeal element, this purely bodily and physical element is at the core of Western art and Western sensibility in complete contravention to the Islamic civilization, for instance, which completely disprivileges the depiction of the face, the hands, the body, and believes that all corporeal images, whether three or two-dimensional, are non-transcendental and erotic and therefore are forbidden. Extreme forms of Orthodox Judaism, which disprivilege art, are the same. You see in this tradition a very strong element of core Western art, strong enough even to resist some of the critical and censorious blandishments of Protestant Christianity. Yes, this is a slightly sentimental piece in mock classical vogue. It's by a female sculptress, Anne Seymour Damer. It's of the dogs. It's very... Um, Victorian in sentiment, if you like. It's a sentimental piece uh, about two dogs. There's nothing really much more to say about it than that. It does relate to the sort of art that Landseer produced in the middle of the Victorian period. And in sculptural terms, Landseer did the lions in Trafalgar Square that face away from the column uh, with Bailey's um, uh, form of Nelson, triumphant and heroic, at the top of the column, the whole thing originally conceived by the architect stroke sculptural designer Railton. Yes, here we have a monumental piece in St Paul's Cathedral by the famous sculptor John Flaxman, um, best remembered now in art history as a close friend of William Blake, who was then very obscure. Um, it's a heroic image of a British martial and naval hero, but again you notice the overwhelming desire to classicise. Britannia is behind him with the trident, um, various uh, heroic maidens and sort of nymphs reach out to him in stone. It's an absolutely enormous piece. Imperial lions exist to one side, looking slightly steep, uh, sleepy. This is the Earl Howe, and you notice in its solidity, in its power, in its monumentalism, in its neoclassicism, extreme imperial strength, total certainty. Uh, this is increasingly the sculpture of the nation-state that believes it's born to dominate the planet. Uh, here we have an, a piece of high classicism or neoclassicism. It's in Flaxman's spirit. Uh, it's just on the cusp of the Victorian era in the 1830s. It's Narcissus as he stares down at a mirror or water, of course, in love with himself. Uh, a naked male, highly Hellenistic and late Roman imperial. It's part of what will become the quintessential sculpture of the Victorian period, uh, as chronicled by a historian called William Gaunt in his two-volume history called Victorian Olympus. This was very much the tendency that the middle to high Victorian period wanted to exemplify, particularly in what might be called establishment or top-down art. It was the belief that we were the inheritors of the Roman imperial tradition, 
that we were the new and the greatest empire since Rome, that we were increasingly coming during this period to dominate at the best a quarter of the planet. And this was the art reaching back 2,000, 2,500 years to the classical dawn of our civilization. It's also interesting to raise two cultural points here. The first is that this tradition sees Britain as the inheritor of the classical world without any equivocation. The imperial or neo-imperial role of the United States in the 20th century and official American art, particularly from the early part of the 19th century, is very much still in this vogue. The art of Washington DC today is this type of art. It's effortlessly imperial, not particularly Christian, and is essentially neoclassical in an extreme manner. The other interesting thing to point out is that in the 20th century, from a liberal perspective, this is the sort of art, certainly after the era of the Great War between 1914 and 18, that will become associated with what will be regarded as totalitarian regimes of left and right. Here is the extension of this type of classicism to the New World, but it could be anywhere in England, Scotland or Wales. This is from 1775, it's a colonial piece from the southern United States, from the state of Virginia. This would obviously be of the master and slave owner of the period. It would be emblematic of the southern ruling aristocracy that would only go down in the 1860s, but part of a century later in the Civil War. So we've got a sculptor here called Richard Hayward, and you can see the monumentalism of the piece. It's at least life-size, as you can see from the people who are transfigured in the background of the photograph. And it's raised, almost like a Donatello, Renaissance uh, sculpture from the middle of the second Christian millennium, on high. This was the Hellenistic pose of white rule in the 1700s on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah, here we have a mausoleum. It's from the Victorian period by Peter Hollins. It's of Mrs. Thompson, who's probably an upper bourgeois as much as an aristocratic figure, maybe died slightly early in life, and therefore the family pays for this enormous tomb in the local priory underneath some stained glass. Um, the sculpture will be at least life-size, and she's depicted in a neoclassical vogue, lying on a bed, which is actually the tomb where her corpse is. So you see in this art the desire for resurrection of the body in accordance with high Anglican and post-Catholic sensibility. You also see the power of local powerful families. We're seeing a situation where it's not just the monarchy, it's not just the aristocracy, it's not just imperial rulers who think of themselves in this way, but it's major provincial families within England in their own areas and localities, squires and so on, who want to see their corpses and their memories of themselves and their wives done up as if they were the consorts of Roman emperors. It's again from the middle of the 1700s. It celebrates provincial strength and aristocratic license. It's of Sir Jacob Gerard. It's from Norfolk in the east of England. Here we've got a sculptor who gives a rather solid classical and three-dimensional representation to a provincial aristocratic family. One is reclining and lying, presumably in death. Others adopt a uh, Roman imperial pose around the near corpse. 
uh, it's again part of this transfiguring desire to see people in a Romanesque and imperial manner, completely out of keeping with the society in which they're living. But it's this desire to see themselves as the repository of the uh, Roman imperial and Hellenistic culture of well over 2,000 years before. Here we have another life-size piece, very much in a classical vogue, but more after the realistic delineation of an 18th century gentleman. This is actually of the Gothic writer William Beckford, who wrote Vathek, uh, which is an extreme horror story in sort of high art terms of its period. Uh, quite militant, atheistic, sort of amoral, and he was a bit of a sort of a so-and-so. And he's captured here as he would like to have been seen by both himself and doubtless his favourable contemporaries. And this is from Ironmonger's Hall, and it's by Moore. And again, the importance of these pieces is their monumentality. This is life-size in stone. I have another classical piece uh, from St Paul's. Very sort of um, neoclassical in feel, idealised. A strong element of narratives creeping into this type of sculpture at this time. This is from 1808, right at the beginning of the 19th century. It celebrates probably the death of a man in combat, maybe in the Napoleonic and French Revolutionary Wars of the period. An angel has come down and weeps upon his tomb. A shroud has sort of been put on one side. The man, or the sort of transubstantiation of his corpse, reanimated um, in accordance with the Christian doctrine of second birth, um, looks out into the distance. Um, you see strongly uh, elitist, hierarchical, and storytelling concerns three-dimensionally in stone in one of our major cathedrals. And here we have another piece which is almost a lying in state really, but it's of another aristocratic female lying side on, probably in a priory or vicarage in Kent. It's again this desire to depict people in death in terms of classical and Christian relief. There's a certain heaviness to the piece. Um, it's very English, very stolid. Um, there's always been the view, particularly on the continent and by certain art critics, um, that English classicism doesn't work too well because their comparison is always uh, the Southern European tradition, where in actual fact it's the same type of art, but it is a different version of it. It's one in which some of the four square and stolid values of English um, self-determination and three-dimensionality come through. From the very beginning of the sculpture that we've looked at in this short film, we can see certain abiding characteristics that pre-exist everything, irrespective of style, time and place. Uh, here's the uh, Duke of Queensbury. Um, from earlier in the period that we're looking at in terms of this particular type of classical sculpture, sort of restoration, 1660 through to the middle, and latter stages of the 19th century, when the style doesn't change too much and is very much of a piece. This is by John Van Noost. It's um, in Scotland. It's very ornate and it's quite Baroque in spirit. He lies in death upon a bed or divan, sort of swooning and thinking great thoughts with several cherubs above him. And there's a plaque that doubtlessly um, lists his honorific titles and so on. And there's a sort of Doric column next to him. Uh, and, and on the other side, and an arch over, 
don't forget this is life size, extremely heavy, and the point is to indicate breeding, monumentalism, importance, and a link to the ancient world. Uh, here we have another classicising piece, life size, from about 1685, so uh, quite a way back, but the style you'll notice from the restoration in 1663 to possibly the Great Reform Act in 1867, is very much of a piece that you could almost argue it could have been done. This particular relief, I think of somebody called Sir John Cutler, uh, at any time during that period. Uh, this is a very large and ornate piece um, by Nicholas Reed in Westminster Abbey, 1766. Again in the style that we've become conversant with during this uh, phase of the film and this historical period with which it deals, um, it's a monument to Admiral Tyrrell. Behind him, in relief, you can see his ship, you can see battle scenes, you can see a sort of angel or his guardian angel or the spirit of victory or his uh, soul leaving his body in accordance with the doctrine of transubstantiation. You can see uh, billowing sails overmastering the top of this angelic image and so on. It's a very big relief with three-dimensional elements. Probably would have taken several years to actually carve and produce. A piece from the early part of the 19th century, 1825. Um, the bowler, cricketing bowler from Woburn Abbey in Bedfordshire by Henry Rossi. It's slightly more populist work, this one, uh, dealing with sport. Um, the bowler is, of course, anonymous. Um, it's classical in its deportment and delineation, but, of course, he's clothed. And you see an encroachment of popular sensibility here, as well as a narrative element. Uh, it relates, of course, much more to the period in which it was produced than to notions about the ancient world. So you're beginning to see a sort of realism in certain elements, um, even of classical sculpture. Yes, here we see another large mausoleum. Um, it's by Joseph Rose the Elder. It again would commemorate an aristocratic or very upper-class family. And it's in Reigate in Surrey, days from the early part of the 18th century. Um, the figures are relatively small, or maybe the photograph is from a distance. Uh, they might be life-size, but an enormous and monumental um, edifice here. It's virtually like a sort of a rock wall in um, neoclassical and heightened vogue dedicated to the power and sort of magnificence of this provincial family. And it shows you the desire these people had to immortalise themselves as sort of provincial imperial figures um, in their area to be watched by their own community as they perceived it forever and ever. Uh, here's another of these increasingly Rococo pieces that we've been looking at, this sort of heightened Baroque uh, classicism of uh, an aristocratic couple gazing in an adoring way at each other, the female lying beneath the male, this is from Suffolk, um, the sculptor is Abraham Storey. Again, we're looking at the early part of this period, the Restoration through to the middle of the 19th century. This piece dates from 1678 and it shows yet again the ideals about themselves that the provincial English and British aristocracy had. A monumentalism, a heightened Baroque sensibility, a classicism and a desire to glorify in family, uh, nationality and self.
Uh, here's another of these increasingly Rococo pieces that we've been looking at, this sort of heightened Baroque uh, classicism of uh, an aristocratic couple gazing uh, in an adoring way at each other, the female lying beneath the male, this is from Suffolk, um, the sculptor is Abraham Storey. Again, we're looking at the early part of this period, the Restoration through to the middle of the 19th century. This piece dates from 1678. And it shows, yet again, the ideals about themselves that the provincial English and British aristocracy had. A monumentalism, a heightened Baroque sensibility, a classicism, and a desire to glorify in family, uh, nationality and self. Yes, here we have another uh, rather classical, not particularly Baroque piece. Um, he quite heavy, solemn, a peer of the realm in his uh, sort of uh, imperial ermine. Again, this desire to present oneself as a Victorian gentleman, as a man of leisure, as a man of means, also as a leader, as a statesman, and something of a Roman senator. Uh, in modernity. Again, this sculpture will be full size and will be there, doubtless on a tomb or mausoleum, to be admired by kith and kin in Oxfordshire. Uh, here we have another slightly ornate piece, again a tomb, two life-size vehicles, uh, aristocratic uh, husband and wife, bewigged in his case, staring into the distance, quite opulent, there's a slightly Baroque touch to it. There's a, a column that looks vaguely Doric to one side of them and an arch. Again, it's designed in a provincial setting. This is doubtless in a probably quite small church in Oxfordshire. It's designed to indicate power, local resource, and that one is part of a higher civilization that's solid, stolid, representational, and knows where it's going and what it represents. Right, here we have another piece uh, from Yorkshire, uh, Reverend Thomas Whitaker, possibly a local sort of um, near-the-edge Anglican to nonconformist firebrand or evangelical preacher of the time, stares out serenely but with a slightly puritanical face at his uh, would-be congregationalists. Again, you see, even extended out to probably a member of the gentry who happens to be in the clergy, the same classicising and heroic tendencies, a virtual full-size replication of self, continuation of one's bodily existence in stone after death, power and permanence, a civilisation that really was encyclopaedic and thought that they could define everything, determine everything, knew what was what, and had the future in their hands. Here we have a slightly new type of sculpture, not in its form or delineation, still classical, but you notice that there's a romantic feel coming in. It's quite naturalistic and realist up to a point, uh, given the classicising tendency we've already mentioned. It's also biographical, it's actually of a person, suddenly the poet. It also relates to a new movement and a new sensibility in the arts, which will become the dominant tendency of the whole of the 19th century, and this is the romantic movement. You notice he's not wearing a wig, he stares directly at the sculptor's eye, if you like, and although it's in Westminster Abbey and it dates from the 1840s, Southey, um, slightly forgotten early romantic poet now, who wrote a famous biography of the uh, naval hero Nelson, uh, Southey looks out at you 
and is the dawn of a new sensibility, uh, more representational, less idealised, and in their own minds a return to natural forms. Now here we have another heroic and classicising piece of a military figure, but he's also partly dressed in the uh, military uniform of a Roman commander from the ancient world, even though he's got a cannon behind him and a coat of arms above. So you've got this idea of modernity, cannon fire from the middle of the 1700s, and yet at the same time, a Roman imperial statesman who in death looks out at the future and the past. Here's an interesting relief, even though the skulls are slightly three-dimensional, from Exeter in the West Country, St. Patrick's Church, 1717 by a profound um, provincial sculptor called Weston. It's of Jonathan and Elizabeth Ivy. And you notice that the background relief, which is above the figures, and is sort of transfigured or transubstantiated souls, some of them bewinged like angels, very much relates to artistic work that could be by Donatello or Bellini um, and with the skulls you have a gothic touch even though this is very much prior to the romantic movement you have in, a, in this art deep down a form of tomb art really an obsession with death and with decay but also with finality don't forget this was a world in which the next life was very close was believed to be totally real and the Christian way was to prepare for it Therefore, the celebration of death in a manner which contemporary people would find very, very difficult to either stomach or understand was ever-present. To put your skulls on the side of a tomb to celebrate your life would have been regarded as normalcy for a high bourgeois family in the provinces like this at the beginning of the 18th century. This is a famous piece dating from the middle of the 18th century by Richard Westmacott the Elder. It's in Gloucestershire. The upper part of this uh, powerful sculpture consists of a guardian angel seen in feminine form uh, raising the top of the lid of a burial urn and sort of a mausoleum. She looks down in a beneficent way upon the corpse who will now rise to ascension. Half of the same image we see the object upon which the uh, female guardian angel or spirit looks from above to below. And this is the skeleton of the departed who's now sort of released from the burial urn and is looking up as a sort of fleshless sort of monster uh, at the angel who's freeing him from death. And he's about to rise in accordance with the high Christian doctrine of the second coming and of the resurrection of the body and the second and final judgment when according to this particular theology all will be redeemed or cursed and thrown down into darkness and hell and those who are not will ascend into heaven and will in certain circumstances achieve again their own corporeal nature so you'll be reborn in life in death even with flesh uh, but the bones survive and are being raised by this angel there's a strongly gothic element to this piece but again you see the obsessionality uh, with death and with the overcoming of death seen in terms of classical sculpture but this uh, tendency towards eros in stone can be seen even more explicitly in gf watts clytie um, 
which is a sort of naked back of a servant girl looking over her shoulder, uh, you possibly realise that given the natural arta element to this sculpture, it couldn't be done from the front because otherwise it would be regarded as straightforwardly pornographic. So we're now seeing the naturalisation of the classical urge as, of course, photography begins. And photography will affect all of the arts uh, to the degree that Romanticism begins to come to an end towards the uh, end of the 19th century. By the turn of the 20th century, it's virtually over and is replaced in modernity by the sensibility which is now called modernism. But with the engine for this change, amongst many, many other complicated factors, is photography. In painting, it forces people not to reveal the nature around them, but to go inside the mind in relation to fantasy and dream and so forth, as firstly still and then moving photography, namely cinema, the art of the 20th century, takes over the realist and representational role in visual art. And similarly in sculpture, a turning away from the body and in towards a non-organic art of individual sensibility that doesn't relate to the society but purely the psychology of the artist begins the trajectory which is called modernism. What we now see is a splitting away of the classical dispensation and radical regimes, um, fascist and communist, ha um, are the only currents in the 20th century where the monumental and classicising tendencies of the last couple of centuries within the West are to be found. Even that is complicated and possibly should be the subject matter for another film. Uh, so this finishes off our uh, re relatively quick resume of uh, English and British sculpture, stretching over several thousands year of years. We've decided to end our film at the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th, and I've ended it here because the modernist sensibility then takes over. Personally, I believe you need another film about modernist sculpture, even modernist art, another two films maybe, um, because this sensibility is a total change and a revolution and a transformation in everything. So the classical tendency, the Christian humanist and post-Christian tendency, the pre-Christian tendency, two, three, four thousand years of work really comes to an end at the end of the 19th century and the representation of the physical body perfect and imperfect then goes into film into still photography into moving photography and then into mass cinema film as well as elitist forms of artistic photography obviously if you stop many classical films and freeze the frame you actually both have a representational painting but also at times a certain three-dimensionality to the piece rather like Mantegna's uh, Renaissance paintings which are a combination of sculpture and painting. Now if we look at the English and British tradition you have examples like uh, Benes's bust of Queen Victoria idealized from before her reign really begins you have William Anderson's version of uh, the Scottish Laureate, or Moral Laureate, Burns, from 1854. You have, as we depicted earlier in the film, the version of Robert Southey, which exists in Bristol Cathedral and was completed by Bailey in 1845. And we have two famous um, sculptures which I would like to finish on, both for aesthetic and political reasons. These are the images of Sir Henry Havelock from 1861 and of General Sir Charles Napier in 1856. These were by uh, 
sculptors such as George Adams. Now, both of these uh, forms are very interesting because Ken Livingstone, the present Mayor of London when he was elected, wanted to tear them down or at least remove them from Trafalgar Square where they sit at the front of the square, often ignored in comparison to Nelson's Column designed by Railton with Bailey's sculpture at the top and Landseer's lines equidistant from the pillar. Now many people, hundreds of thousands of people, will pass these sculptures of Havelock and Napier at the front of the square uh, going down into Northumberland Avenue where the Ministry of Defence now is and they will not know who these figures are. These figures are imperialists from the Indian Raj in the 19th century. One of them is responsible for putting down the Indian mutiny with um, quite considerable bloodshed and it's because a leftist like Livingston, Mayor Livingston, knows this that he wanted these figures removed. He couldn't get them removed because his importance and alleged civic esteem as mayor doesn't extend to the appurtenances of Trafalgar Square. He's got no control over the statue in the square. He can ban the pigeons from the square or ban people feeding the pigeons, but he can't remove sculpture. So what he did to get his own back is he had the empty plinth at the far corner of the square, which is adjacent to the National Gallery behind it and looks across to the Canadian Embassy on the other side, and he used that for Turner Prize exhibit art deliberately to get back at the authorities who denied the fact that he could remove Napier and Havelock from the front of the square. So, in this talk about aesthetics and politics, we come full circle because the high Victorian classical impulse exists in the central square right at the heart of our post-imperial city, London, where we now have a sort of anti-British and unpatriotic mayor who wants to repudiate the imperial past, the imperial past which is in fact partly led, amongst many other factors, to London's multiracial present status. Nevertheless, the thing he wants to remove from the square is the symbolism of the past, is the way in which it classed itself, is its classification of itself, i.e. its classicism. So, so to end this film, I would ask people when passing across the precincts of Trafalgar Square to have a look at these rather strong, slightly dour, stolid pieces of English sculpture at the front of the square depicting Havelock and Napier as imperial warriors and heroes in a subdued classical manner. The images and reliefs and bulk masses that Livingston wished to remove to some obscure place in Sheffield or Bolton where you would never see them again.